Okay, we've started a short little summer series on the devil. And we did two studies so far on him. We talked about his origins, uh, being a creation of God, created to be a worshiper and to hover over the throne of God, called Lucifer, son of the morning, as one of the most beautiful creatures ever created. Uh, he, is, he was one of those. And uh, he got the thought that he was so beautiful that he could step up and take over God's throne. And he said, I'm going to make my throne like God's throne, and I'm going to be like the Most High. Well, that was pride at work, and he got uh, tossed out of heaven, and down inside of him grew every evil thing you can imagine. And he was... Uh, uh, filled with violence, the Bible says he was filled with violence. Uh, he was a murderer, a liar. And then we saw him last week at work trying to turn Jesus away from the cross through a series of temptations as he tries to uh, uh, turn the Lord Jesus uh, from the path that he had been chosen to be on. And he's very subtle, very clever. And you, you should never say the devil is wise. If he was wise, he wouldn't be the devil, okay? <laughs> he's not wise, but he is clever. He's very clever. And he's well able to knock us for a loop. And he has done that. So if we stop for a minute and consider that God uh, created worlds and different worlds. And in that uh, creation, he created a series of angels of all types. And one of those angels, one of the great ones that he created, went really bad. And... Uh, in we saw him coming into the second new creation when the human race is created. And he shows up right there in the Garden of Eden and he tempts Eve and she f falls for the old uh, ploy that you can be like God. He knew better. He'd already tried that and lost. But he tells her, you can be like God. And she uh, falls for it. And Adam, um, probably more than Eve, because the Bible says that Eve was deceived by Satan. That is, Satan fooled Eve into thinking that she could be like God. It said Adam was not deceived. And so he went in with his eyes open. He made a conscious choice to rebel against God. He said, I'm going to do this because probably because Eve is going to do it. And I know that this isn't what I should do, but that's what I want to do. And so he did it. And so uh, the human race now, this other creation, falls into sin. And uh, the question, and don't ever be afraid to ask questions. We should always ask questions. Uh, sometimes you need to stop asking questions <laughs> there's a time when you should stop and just accept the truth but uh, we do need to ask questions and, and when you think about this here's a creature who was created and turned horribly horribly bad 
And the question, first question that comes to your mind is why did God create Satan? You want to know why God created Satan. Now, God knows everything that's going to happen. And he knew that Satan would rebel. And God knew that ahead of time. And we know specifically that God knew that Adam and Eve were also going to rebel against him. Because the Bible says that before he created the world... Jesus was already slain in the mind of God. Or that is, uh, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit sat down and had a meeting. And they said, we're going to create a race. A new race of humans will make him in our image. Okay, what's going to happen to him? Well, we're going to give them a right to make a choice, to decide what they want to do. But we know that they will choose to rebel. And so how are we going to fix the rebellion? I'm going to go down and take up a human body and live and die in a human form and redeem the race and buy them back. So God knew ahead of time what was going to happen. If God knew ahead of time what the devil was going to do, why did he make him in the first place? That's a good question. That's a good question. How do we explain the existence of the devil? And one of the great arguments about uh, God is against God that people use is why does evil exist? If God is God, if God is so powerful and God can do all those things, then why does evil exist? Why doesn't he just... Get rid of it. When Satan did what he did, why didn't he just squash him like a bug and be done with it? Why is it like the way it is? Is there a reason why that Satan exists? Is there a reason why God allowed such things to be? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. I can't, we, nobody can say, here's what God thinks. <laughs> All right. Nobody can, because the Bible clearly tells us who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor. He doesn't have any counselor. Nobody understands. Uh, he says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. So we can't think like God. So we're going to try to think about this question. Why does the devil exist? Why was he allowed to exist? Why was he created in the first place? And uh, you have to know that in God there's one great statement that says, all things work together for good. So how can that miserable, murdering liar make all things work together for good? Well, there's two things to consider as we go into our thoughts on the devil and what's going to happen as we think about uh, not only the devil, but in particular, judgment. We're interested tonight in judgment. All right. So, uh, why would God allow a creature like the devil to exist to 
rebel against him. And then what appears to us, we looked at it uh, two weeks ago, was that one third of the angels in heaven followed him because it says that he uh, took one third of the stars with a swipe of his tail. Uh, the beast, the dragon went down and they were cast out of heaven. So uh, why such a large rebellion? Why did God allow it to happen? Well, there's a couple of thoughts we want to go over as we get into what we're about to think about. First thing is that it is the ultimate power of a God who can say, I can create something that's against me and I can let it go. And it can go to its fullest extent. It can rebel and grow and rebel and grow and spread the rebellion. And when the rebellion reaches its absolute height, it's nothing to me. I can go. And it's gone. And so there's something about the glory of God that he can create not just worlds, but systems, and whole systems of evil are allowed to exist because he's certainly not afraid that they're going to take over. God never thought, like you and I tend to think, that there's a contest between good and evil and we're hoping God comes out on top. That was never the case, all right? God knew from the before he created Lucifer... That he would rebel and he knew that he would lead one of the great rebellions against him. And that when the ultimate rebellion came and when Satan comes and fills, pours his power into a human, Antichrist. When Satan gives all of his power to a human and to a second human, uh, the prophet, right? So we have two, Antichrist and the prophet, in the end of time. That's when they come to their ultimate rebellion as the human race finally shakes his fist in God's face. Says we're going to do it our own way. And then Jesus Christ comes in through the clouds and says... And he wipes them out single-handedly at the Battle of Armageddon. No big deal. It's not even an effort. All right. So here's a God that's so powerful that he can let any rebellion grow as big as it wants. And he's not up there thinking, is it getting out of hand? No. Any moment, any time, he can stop it quick like that. Which ought to say to you and me What? You better behave. <laughs> you better behave. If he can stop Satan anytime he wants, he can stop you and me anytime he wants too. And, and uh, so uh, certainly it is to the glory of God that he can allow any kind of rebellion to grow and he's not up there thinking, I better we'll keep my eye on them. No, he's got it under control. So that's one thing. The second thing is why does Satan exist and why does evil exist in the world? Uh, God created angels and God created the human race for the same purpose. All so that we would worship him and love him. 
And he knows that you can't force anybody to love you. You can't do it. I've seen that happen. I've seen it tried. I remember I had an uncle, he was a filthy old miserable drunk slob. Get it? He's not a good guy. He was not a good guy. And he had a little granddaughter and he brought her once when I was up with Uncle Ed and, and, and in he came the old slob with his little granddaughter little girl like that and I had my kids were there I said come on let's go for a ride in the woods and young lady you come with us she can't go until she goes and kisses grandpa she didn't want to do that she hated that thought I said, honey, I'll wait for you. I go, well, I'll take you for a ride. And she just stood there, and I know the last thing she wanted to do was kiss that old drunk. She just hated it. And finally, she looked at me, and she looked at him. She went over, she gave him a little kiss, and she got in the wagon. Believe me, she did not love him. That was the longest ride I ever gave any kid in the history of the world. I said, honey, we're going to go for a long time. It'll be time for you to go home before I bring you back. And so you can't force anybody to love you. It just can't happen. And God knows it. So what is the truth about God is that he desires a loving relationship with people, with angels, with any creature that he's created. And what he wants is for us to love him back. And in order for that to happen, he had to make it possible for us to choose to love him. So he wasn't doing this. Now love me. No. He said, I'll give you the choice. You can turn your back at me. You can spit at me. You can shake your fist in my face. But if you love me... And I'll love you back, and it'll be the most wonderful thing. But I want you to choose to do it. It must be that his heart is so kind and so loving that he would allow rebellion of the worst kind in order to get love of the highest kind. So he treasures love he wants love and he desperately wants people to love him because they choose to not because they're forced to and he knew the only way that that would happen would be if he gave us the choice and i always define love by saying love is a sovereign choice You love somebody and sometimes you don't even know why. Right? You just love them. You made a choice. I choose, I I love that person. I love that person and I choose to. It's my right and I choose to do it. That's what love is. It's a sovereign choice and God knew that. And so in order for him to have people who love him truly and deeply like he really wants he had to allow them to have the right to rebel 
And so I think that within that framework, God is not scared by any rebellion. He can handle it. So he's very He's, he's glorified by the fact that you go ahead and do all you want. You'll never succeed in rebelling against God. And what I want you to choose to do is love me. And so I think Satan exists because it proves that God is almighty. And it also proves that he's given you a right, a freedom to choose to love him because he knows that'll come out best. And in the end, what will happen is that he will entirely wipe out all rebellion, all, matter of fact, Jesus said, anything that offends will be gone. We sing it at Thanksgiving, right? It's a song we sing. Come, you thankful people, come. Raise a song of harvest home. All is safely gathered in. We're talking about people who know God. Ere the winter storms begin. Right? And all the world is God's own field. Fruit unto his praise to yield. Wheat and tares together sown. Unto joy or sorrow grown. Right? And then the last part is that God uh, is calling us to come to him. And so we have... He said, from his field shall in that day all offenses purge away. Give his angels charge at last in the fire the tares to cast, but the fruitful ears to store in his garner evermore. Now we still say, when you said all that, still say, God, can't you get rid of that guy? I just think it's going along all right. Can't you? Let's get rid of him now. All right, let's get rid of him now. And we're going to start in 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to flip around a little bit tonight because we want to get some thoughts in our mind as we try to think about why Satan exists and beyond that, why God behaves the way he does. 2 Peter chapter 3. This is a pretty famous passage here, which we will look at a little bit more tonight. But we want to start down here at verse number 8. So 2 Peter 3 verse number 8. But beloved be not ignorant of this one thing that one day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness. And the point was that people are saying well where's Jesus supposed to be coming and he's not coming. We've been waiting and he's not coming. So it uh, must be he's not going to take care of business. And he says he's not slack concerning his promise as some men counsel it, but is long suffering to us word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So we have the idea that God's kind of dragging this thing out and you got to get it going. Come on, God, get this thing taken care of. And he says that's not how God views things. He says with God a thousand years is as a day. And the day is as a thousand years. You can't think like that. I can't think like that. A day is a day. Two days are two days. A week's a week for me. All right? That's the way it is with you. Because we have only ever lived in time. 
God lives outside of time, and so it's totally irrelevant to his thought processes and to his actions. And so when we stand back and say, come on, God, why can't you get rid of that Satan? I'm kind of waiting for you to catch up. He said, no, no, no. The reason God is waiting, the reason God is holding back is so that people have more time to repent. So he says he's waiting. You you think he's being uh, uh, ignoring us. But he's not ignoring us at all. He's waiting because he is patient. He is patient. All right. And if be anything be true about us compared to God, that we're impatient, right? We are impatient compared to God. No matter how patient we are, we're always impatient compared to God. And so God is patiently waiting, and he doesn't deal in time. Now, we've got to think about that a little bit more. But the day is coming when he's going to bring judgment to the devil. Now, to some degree, that has already happened. That has already happened. But in the meantime, God is waiting. He's patiently waiting. Uh, And so I want you to see just how this works. Genesis 15 Genesis 15. God's talking with Abraham and he's promising him the promised land. He says, uh, you're going to walk around this property. Wherever your foot goes, I'll give it to your children. I want you to own all this property uh, but not quite yet. Right, Genesis 15, verse 16. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. The Amorites was the general name of the people who lived in Canaan. And God said to Abraham, I'm going to give this land to you. It's going to take four generations until my patience runs out. He said, in four generations, you'll come back here and take the promised land in four generations. And and by then, my patience will be done with these people and we'll wipe them off the face of the earth. But I'm going to be patient until then. Look back to Genesis uh, chapter 6. Some really bad things are happening in the history of the early world. Genesis 6 and 3, the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his day should be 120 years. So he said, I'm not always going to be patient with people. I'm going to be patient, and then there's going to come a day when it stops. When the cup of iniquity is full, and I'm going to stop it. And so... Uh, God promises judgment to come, but he's being patient about it. Now, what about the devil? Well, first of all, God's already decided what's going to happen. Take a look at Matthew uh, chapter 25. This is where God talks about the end of time and how things will happen in the end of time. 
And he's talking about a judgment day. And this is for humans. And we'll go on a little bit more with this in our study next week. But he's talking about a judgment day for humans. And if you look at uh, verse uh, verse 34. Oh, I'm sorry. Let's, let's go down to verse 40. And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as you have done it to one of the least of these my brethren, you have done it unto me. And so he said, You fed me, you took care of me, when I, you visited me when I was in prison, you helped me, so I'm going to reward you. Now, there's some others. Verse 41. Then shall he say to them on the left, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Right, so humans are going to end up in what he called everlasting fire. Everlasting fire. And he said that place of everlasting fire was made... It exists for the devil and for the people, the angels that followed him. And so there is a place of existence called, he, Jesus calls it everlasting fire. And, and Jesus himself said that, that place was made for Satan. That's how I'm going to take care of him. Now, I want to think about how things are. I'm going to talk about four dimensions. Four dimensions of existence. Four dimensions of existence. The Bible talks about four different dimensions. When I say dimension, we live in a dimension. All right, We live in this earth here. Uh, the world we live in is one dimension. We're bound by time and space. Two things tie us up, time and space. And we can't get out of this dimension. Try it. <laughs> so you're going to get in a rocket ship. I'm going to go up and go ahead. Go up until you run out of gas or whatever. Now you're always going to be in a dimension that's in time and space. You cannot escape this dimension. All right? Now, there's another ex dimension of existence, which the Bible says is God's throne. All right? There are creatures that live in that dimension. The angels live in that dimension. God's throne is in that dimension. You and I can't get there from here, so to speak. It's a different dimension, and we can't move from one to the other. And then we're going to put the word hell down as a third dimension, even though it's not exactly right. Uh, what Jesus called everlasting fire is really that third dimension. That's a place that once you're in that dimension, you can never get out of it, just like we can't get out of this dimension. Once you're in that dimension of existence, you're there forever. It's called hell. A lot of times in the Bible, although we'll correct that a little bit. And the last one that the Bible talks about 
is called the air. And we call it that because we don't know what else to call it. Uh, the devil has been given a title that says that he's the prince and power of the air. That is, he has some power over another dimension of existence, a fourth dimension of existence that the Bible talks about. And we call it the air. And the only way I can describe it to you is, is right here. It's right next to our dimension, only we can't get to it. How do we know that such a place exists? Because angels can go through into that dimension and have crossed into our dimension, right? And gone back. Remember the angels at the birth of Christ. There's only one. He comes down, talks to the shepherd, and all of a sudden says the sky is full of a multitude of heavenly hosts. Where'd they come from? They came out of the dimension where they were out of sight into our dimension, sang about his birth, and then it said they went back out and left our dimension. So the angels can come and go into our dimension and out of our dimension. We see it at the resurrection of Christ. There's angels coming down into our world and talking with people at the tomb of Christ. But they can move around in that place called the air, a dimension of existence right next to us. And so the Bible tells us that Satan is walking up and down through the earth to and fro all about the earth. Remember when we read the book of Job, it tells us that he is moving around throughout the earth looking at people. How does he do that? And we don't see him because he's in this dimension. This dimension that exists next to ours. So the Bible tells us these four dimensions that exist. We are in the earth time and space dimension. We are trapped by time and by space. We we fill up space. Some of us fill more space than others, all right? But when something is fills up that space right there, if I want to stand there, I can't because that space is full. All right, I'm going to hit the wall when I go there. I won't go through the wall, all right? When Jesus is resurrected, he's moving in and out. All of a sudden, he's in the upper room. How did he get there? He moves in another dimension of existence comes into our dimension and out of our dimension, right? So the earth is where we are stuck. We can't get off unless we die. Now, we want to take a little bit of time to probably try to explain something uh, about the word hell that we talk about quite a bit. Uh, Look at uh, 1 Peter now. Back to 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3. I'm going to I'm going to turn, you keep your finger there. I'm going to turn back to Ephesians 4, a few pages back to Ephesians 4. We should read this one first. Ephesians 4, 
They're talking about the death of Christ. In verse 8, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now he that ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. He that descended the same also that as ascended uh, up far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And so when Christ died on a cross, said he descended and then he ascended. When he descended, he went down into a place that the Bible usually interprets with the word hell. Actually, the word is Sheol. It's called Sheol. You probably have heard that word before. Sheol is actually the place of the dead. It's the place of the dead. Now we know about it because Jesus explained what Sheol was. He explained what Sheol was in Luke 16. There's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And this rich man had everything he needed and there was a beggar outside of his gates named Lazarus and I'm in Luke 16 and uh, the rich man died and Lazarus died it says Lazarus verse 22 of Luke 16 it came to pass the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom the rich man also died and he was buried and in hell he lifted up his eyes and being in torment seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom and so they both die they both go to Sheol the place of the dead uh, but looking way over there is this beggar Lazarus and he's up there with Abraham and the rich man is down there it says he's in hell and he's in torment and he lifts up his eyes and he can see and he says is there something I can do to get out of here help me send Lazarus the beggar down with his water finger dipped in water and just touch my tongue please just that that's not much, is it? Just think how much relief it is if he begged for that in a place like that. Now, here's the point. Verse 26. Besides all this, between us and you is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from hence. And so, in the Sheol, in the place of the dead, there's a great big divide right down the middle. And when people died... Believing in God, they went to what's called paradise. One side was called paradise, and the other side was called hell, or Sheol, was all the place of the dead. And people who rejected God went there, and people who accepted and believed in God went to paradise. And they're all in the same dimension, but they're divided in that dimension. They can't cross back and forth. So Jesus said, there's a place of the dead, and when people died all the way up till the death of Christ, when people died, they went there. And over on the good side here is Abraham and Moses and, and Jacob and uh, 
David and the rest of them are up there, the old saints. And on the other side, there's all those who rejected God on the other side. They cannot move back and forth. So, now we go to Peter. 1 Peter 3. I'm looking at verse number 18. Christ also once suffered for our sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometimes were disobedient. So here's what we believe. When Christ descended, first thing he did was descend. He descended into the place of the dead called Sheol. And it says that he preached to the spirits who were there on the dark side, on the bad side. He preached to them. What did he preach to them? He didn't say, I died for your sins. You can all get out now. No, he didn't. He said, you've been righteously judged. Everything that happened to you was what you asked for. You got it, and you're stuck here. And you'll be here until something takes you out of here. And it's not going to be me. So he shut the door, and he left them there. He took these people on this side, and he said, now we're going up to this dimension, God's throne. I'm taking you with me. We have it in Psalm 22, where it says he ascended up and approached the gates of heaven and they call out who's coming? Who's coming? And they say it's the Lord strong and mighty, mighty in battle open those gates let us in. And so they go into that dimension. So he emptied paradise. We sing it in our Easter song. Right? Christ has opened paradise. Hallelujah. Right? So these people move into another dimension. They are now in heaven, in God's throne, in that dimension of existence. Why couldn't they go there before? They had to wait to be redeemed by the blood of the Most High God. The only reason they were there is because what? They killed animals, goats and bulls and sheep. And shed that blood. And that blood couldn't get you where you needed to go. It was like a credit slip. So we'll give you a credit slip. And when the day comes, you can bring in your credit slip. And God's blood then will cover you. And you can move to another dimension. So hell is still got people in. They're still there. The people that were originally there when Jesus went in and told them they'd been righteously judged are still there. And so, what's going to happen to that? Well, first let's concern ourselves with what's going to happen to the devil. Right, now, we know there's a place called everlasting fire. That's where Jesus said we made that place for the devil. All right, now let's take a look. Revelations chapter 20. Revelations chapter 20. Here we have what happened to 
the devil. Or I should say, what is going to happen? It's as good as happened, because God's already told what's going to happen. But uh, there's coming a day, Satan inspires the Antichrist, makes a great rebellion. Jesus returns to earth. Wipes them out at the battle of Armageddon. Takes over the world. Chapter 20 of Revelation. I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him that he should deceive the nations no more till a thousand years should be filled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. So, Christ come back to earth, going to set up his kingdom. And that'll be a day. Wow, what a day that'll be. Uh, He's sure going to make people look foolish when he comes through the clouds. And the promise is that every eye shall see him. So I think he's going to take a couple laps around the world. You know, and uh, by the time they get their cameras focused, he's heading around again. He's going to take a couple laps around the world, and everybody's going to know that he's arrived and that they were wrong. And the Bible says that people who knew, who rejected God, are going to pray that the mountains will fall on them and bury them alive. They're going to pray that they'd be buried alive because they get a look and see who it is. And they realize it's Jesus, right? So, he's come down. He says, we're going to get rid of Satan. Take him and throw him in a bottomless pit. Now, my question is, is that another dimension of existence? I don't know. The Bible mentions it here. And it's a very descriptive uh, name, a bottomless pit. You just fall and fall and fall and fall and fall. For a thousand years, he's falling. Uh, and it's dark, and he's enchained, and he's stopped. And he's in this place where he's sort of uh, uh, out of commission. He can't function. He can't do anything there. He's in this bottomless pit. And this angel has come down, chained him up, and thrown him in the pit. Now, is this the first time we ever hear of it? Well, I think there's a pretty good hint uh, that uh, this has been mentioned before uh, Jude the book of Jude which is just before Revelations the book of Jude there's only one chapter book of Jude verse 6 The angels which kept not their first estate, 
but left their own habitation. He hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Apparently, there were angels part of Satan's rebellion who were so bad and so violent that God said, we're going to take those out of circulation right now. And so part of the rebellion of Satan, uh, there are some angels that were put into this place, which may very well be the bottomless pit. He said they chained him and said Satan was chained and thrown into the bottomless pit. So there were angels that God said, no, no. We're not turning these loose on the world. Chain them up, put them somewhere where they're out of commission. And they're going to wait until I'm ready. So God is perfectly capable of wiping out angels, putting them in this place, which is called a bottomless pit. He's got Satan in there for a thousand years. Now, uh, the amazing thing is Jesus Christ comes to earth. And he makes it what it could have been if we'd only listened to God. <laughs> we'd only done what God wanted. This world would have been something. Uh, but well, he's going to fix that. And so uh, every weapon is going to turn into a tool. All right. So he says he's going to beat your swords into plowshares. And so we'll study war no more. So it'll be a thousand years of perfect peace when Christ comes to the world to reign. Uh, they're going to teach about God for a thousand years all over the world. And he says the glory of the Lord will be taught and it'll fill the world like the waters cover the sea. And so people who are teachers for God are going to go teach. They're going to teach all around the world. They're going to teach about God. Uh, the lion will lay down with the lamb. So the stress in nature, which exists today, will be taken out when he comes to reign. And it says children will play with poisonous snakes and have fun with them, playing with them. And then he said, if you want to lay down with your head on a lion, I want to do that so bad. I like to lay my head right on a lion. Wouldn't that be something well, that's just going to be possible in that thousand years of reigning. And so it was a wonderful uh, thing that God shows us. He's going to show us where our energy, where the healing is in nature. We're always looking for it. We never really quite find it. It's all there. And he'll show us where, how we can be healed. He'll show us so many things. It'll be perfectly wonderful thousand years. And we can reign with Christ together with him for a thousand years. Make sure you're on the right side of that. Okay. Devil's on the wrong side. He's in a bottomless pit for a thousand years. Now, for some reason, we're going to turn him out. All right. And so, verse 7 of Revelation 20. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison, shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up the breadth of the earth, compassed the camp of the saints about the beloved city. Fire came from God out of heaven and devoured them. That's it. They're done. 
<laughs> the last great rebellion. You think after a thousand years of the reign of Christ and perfect peace, the Prince of Peace, you think humans would say, who didn't get it? You didn't get it? And sure enough, when they turn Satan loose after a thousand years, he's able to stir up humans again and they march on Jerusalem. And this time God says, we're just not even going to bother with it. Whoosh, they're gone. Just like that, they're gone. So I want you to see that it never was a problem. Satan never was a problem. Rebellion has never been a problem for God. All right? And so uh, after a thousand years in a bottomless pit, Satan is released out, comes to the world, deceives them again. Why is he able to deceive them? Because in their heart, they still rebel against God. It's so deep set in the human race that you know, it is a little bit of food and we swallow it up. Find ourselves rebelling against God. Doesn't take much to get us to go over. All right, so that's the end of that rebellion. Verse 10. The devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. There you go. What we always thought should have happened a long time ago has just happened. We just saw it. He was thrown into the everlasting fire, the lake of fire. And so this place, paradise, uh, will be empty as a dimension, all right, because the people who are here will be put into there. Hell delivers up the dead. That's place of existence is gone and so this other dimension exists of everlasting fire created for Satan. Satan that place exists specifically for him and his angels and when humans join that rebellion then they're going to go there too. And what is it like? I can't explain what it's like except for anything good about God has been with, removed. Now this world that we live in is full of good things about God. This world is full of it. Look at the sunset. Right? You go home, you look at the sunset, that's beautiful. That's the goodness of God. Listen to the birds sing when we're down in West Jackson. That's the goodness of God. Right? Look at the green grass. Look at this rain coming. It's the goodness of God. Look at a tree. I love trees. Look at a tree. It's the goodness of God. We are surrounded every day. You take a breath from the goodness of God. We are soaked in, surrounded by, covered by the goodness of God every minute we're alive on this earth. It's all around us. We are constantly experiencing the goodness of God. Your family. You love your family. It's the goodness of God to you. It's your family. It's the goodness of God to you. Your ability to get up and go every morning is the goodness of God to you. It's all, we're just surrounded with it. All those things are removed in the lake of fire. All that is there is the anger and the judgment of God. 
so that they can never escape God. You never escape God. And they are surrounded by the judgment of God when all the goodness and all the kindness and all the mercy is pulled away. Say, well, why would God remove his mercy? Because he gave it to him for a whole lifetime. We spent our life down here in this world and God offered mercy, mercy, mercy. Streams of mercy we sing, never ceasing, right? Call for songs aloud as praise. So we have, we're surrounded in mercy and kindness and goodness. And that will be removed entirely so that in hell, in that everlasting fire, is an everlasting torment there. And don't get the idea that Satan's the king of the place. He's not. He's just a little worm down the corner. Matter of fact, the Bible specifically says when they see him over in the corner, they'll look at him and say, he caused all that trouble? Because there's no big shots in hell. And anybody there that amounts to anything. And the description that the Bible uses is a worm to describe people there. So their worm never dies. Um, If you've rejected God and turned your back on God and said no to God forever and ever in your lifetime, and then you die, and you're in a place uh, where, who are you? Well, the image of God is gone. There's no image of God in hell. Right now, for those of us who go to this dimension, to God's throne, the image of God will suddenly be enhanced in us. And we will look and act and experience and be more like God than we ever have been yet. Won't that be something, huh? We'll, we, we will improve, actually. The Bible says we will improve. And when we get to heaven, we'll be uh, made so that there's no more sadness and sorrow and sickness, no more sin. And so we're going to improve. The people there will uh, shrink and become sort of nothing. We actually have a description of them. In Isaiah, the very last chapter, a description of the people who are there. Listen to it. For the new heavens and new earth which I will make shall remain before me, saith the Lord. So shall your seed and your name remain. It shall come to pass from one new moon to another, one Sabbath to another. All flesh shall come worship before me, saith the Lord. That's when God's sitting on his throne, the whole world worshiping him. They shall go forth and look on the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. For their worms shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched. They shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. Or that is, we're going to get a look at people down there in that dimension. And you'll say, Such a disgusting, that's it. Such a disgusting 
view. Because once you've rejected God and taken him totally out of your life, and he says, okay, that's the way you want it, I'll give it to you. Take God out of your life, what's left? A disgusting, horrible worm of a creature. No longer any reflection of God. And that's what is in hell. And so they're shrinking into nothingness. But they always exist. Always exist. Never set free. I can't explain all that exactly. That's what it says. So the devil gets his own. A little while in a bottomless pit. And then into the everlasting fire forever and ever. Where he is nothing. He's a worm. It's a disgusting creature. So we talked about the devil's rebellion. We will talk some more next week about uh, the judgment day for humans. How that works out. And uh, what happens with humans at the judgment day. And uh, in particular to you and I and the whole world as we are all called to judgment. All right, but Satan, that's where he ends up. God knew it from the beginning. He created an entire uh, dimension of existence just to put him there. Uh, And he did it long, long before Adam and Eve probably were even around. So he prepared this place for the devil. So he always knew he would end up there He's going to let them rebel and then squash it. Just, and it's gone. Okay, thank you.